again, you may be seated. Let me encourage you to join me now at this time to take uh, your personal copy of God's Word or a copy of the Pew Bible and turn with me to our passage this morning, which is Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to look at all of Proverbs 4. I don't know if we will get through all of it. We may have to come back to it again uh, next Sunday, but we're going to read all of it this morning uh, just in case. And what we're going to see and what we're going to talk about is in this book of wisdom, there's a tradition of wisdom. We have seen aspects of tradition of wisdom so far in the previous three chapters, but there's something more specific about the tradition of biblical wisdom that we'll look at together this morning in Proverbs 4. As you find that, let me pray for us as we come together now as God's people before his word. So let's pray. Oh Lord, our God. We do come to you now. We are thankful for your word. We are thankful for Jesus Christ, who is the word incarnate. We are thankful that all of scripture points to Jesus. And when we go to the Old Testament, here in Proverbs 4, we find it points us to Jesus. So through the spirit of Christ, may we be pointed to Christ this morning in conviction of sin, in comfort of forgiveness in Christ, conformity to him more and more, and the call to be his people. So Lord, be at work in this way through me and in your people this morning. In this you will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Proverbs 4, all the, all the passage, but since it's a sizable passage, we'll stay seated for the reading of God's word. But I invite you to join me now as we read it together. Hear, O sons, the Father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insights. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way to wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your hearts. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, put devious talk far from you. 
Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. A few years ago, a a Christian study group put together a study. They put out to a number of churches and pastors. And the study was concerning the the most fiercely defended traditions in church. So they put out, I think, about 1,000 or 2,000 <clears throat> surveys to churches and Christians, and they said, what are, in your opinion, the most fiercely defended traditions in your church? And the way to define traditions were those extra-biblical customs that have become a way of life for many congregations. So silently, not out loud, but silently, let's take a moment and let's think about what we would include on that survey. We were contacted... Somebody said, what are the most fiercely defended traditions in your church? What would you include on that list? Maybe from here at Bethel. Maybe from another church you're familiar with. But what would you include on that list? Did you think about it? Let me share with you part of the list that they put together from this study. Number one was worship and music style. Most fiercely defended tradition in church is worship and music style. And we can understand that, right? Because if we were to show up next week and you saw that I had a rock band put up here to lead us in worship, I think I may get some angry emails next week. We understand that. Also included in the list are times of worship service. If your church has been meeting at 11 o'clock for 100 years until Jesus comes back, your church will continue to meet at 11 o'clock, right? Location of church facility. People can get upset if you have to move locations, which is interesting because Bethel ARP is in their third location. So I don't know how fiercely we defended it before, but here we are at our third location, the location of church facility, use of specific rooms. Sunday school room will always be a Sunday school room. Women's parlor will always be the women's parlor. Fellowship hall will always be the fellowship hall. Another one included on the list, pews. One of the most fiercely defended traditions in church is your pew. Where you sit Sunday after Sunday. That's beyond my pale of thinking, but people can get very defensive about what pew they sit in week after week. So these are just some of the most fiercely defended traditions in churches. You may want to add something to that list. But when we think about traditions in church, we find that they can be good, but they can also be bad. Sometimes traditions are good because, uh, or they, sometimes tra- tra- let me say, let's say this over again. Sometimes traditions can unite us when they are good traditions, and good traditions are those that will faithfully point us to God and to His Word. If we have that, these traditions that faithfully always point to God's Word, those would be good, good traditions, can't they? But when we have those traditions that can cause division. They can also kill. When we hold on to those traditions more than we hold on to God and to his word, then that's bad. When we take tradition and we put it above God and his word, that will kill a church. That's where that old bit of wisdom comes from. The seven last dying words, or seven last words of a dying church are, 
We've never done it that way before. And how many times can we think of examples of a church saying that? We've never done it that way before. And so it can get in the way of gospel ministry. Traditions in themselves aren't good or bad. It's what we do with them. It's how we choose to hold on to them. Do we put God above our traditions? Or do our traditions come above God? What do we do with our traditions? Because our passage this morning is dealing with a tradition. It's the tradition of wisdom being passed down through the generations. And what we learn here is really we're doing one of two things. Either we are passing down godly biblical wisdom, godly biblical wisdom to the next generation, or we aren't. Either we are doing it, or we are choosing not to do it. And so what Solomon is talking about here is not a future statement. It's not something for you to go home and think about doing. It's a statement of now. What are you doing now? Are you actively and intentionally passing down godly biblical wisdom to the generations below you? Or are you choosing to not pass down godly biblical wisdom to the generations below us? The wisdom we find here is that either we will choose to pass down godly biblical wisdom or when we choose not to, we are instead choosing to pass down the wisdom of Satan and the world. And we think about those are our two options. I think we know which option we want. When we think about our family, when we think about our church, We want to pass down good, godly, biblical wisdom. We don't want to pass along the wisdom of Satan and the world. So the question we have to each answer is, what are we doing? What wisdom are we holding on to? What are we choosing to do? What wisdom are you choosing each and every day to pass along? Because that is what Solomon is teaching here in our passage. Now you may notice something interesting in this. Solomon is kind of changing his tone in a sense uh, because in, in, in the previous three passages it's been Solomon talking with his son. It's been a conversation between these two. But now in this passage we are introduced to Solomon's father, the son's grandfather. Look again at verses 1 through 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain, gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, the only one the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. So Solomon is in this tradition of passing down wisdom to his son. And he's passing down wisdom that he actually learned from his father. That Solomon's father took the time to to take Solomon's side to teach him biblical godly wisdom. Now Bible quiz time. Do you remember who Solomon's father was? David. The man after God's own heart. So think about the son in this passage. He has a pretty good deal going on here, doesn't he? Like I said, we can think about this in the context of Solomon and his son out fishing. And so they're sitting there and they're out fishing. And he's hearing godly biblical wisdom given to him by his father. Who is described as being the wisest man in the world. 
And where did he get his wisdom from? His father, a man after God's own heart. And wouldn't you love to be in his son's shoes? You could hear from the wisest man in the world who, who in part learned it uh, from a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful deal he has. But the wonderful nature of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture is that we actually have a better deal than the son does. Because the son is hearing from Solomon, who had heard from David, and that traces back to who? It traces back to God. So he has this little slice of wisdom here in Proverbs. We have all of God's wisdom in the word. So we have the privilege of hearing from Solomon. We have the privilege of hearing from David. We have the privilege of hearing from God himself, wisdom incarnate in Jesus Christ. So we have this beautiful blessing, a tradition of wisdom being passed down to us from wisdom himself, dependent upon how we choose to hear and receive it. Because even now, even as you sit in your pew right now, how are you choosing to listen to God's word and wisdom? 11.45, he's got 15 minutes to finish up his point before my stomach starts rumbling and i got to get home. 15 minutes, and i got to get out of here because I'm bored. And i got swimming to do, got friends to be with. I kind of put myself on a time clock here 15 minutes, haven't I? Give me 17 and we'll be done. 18. We'll stop at 18. We'll barter at 18. How do you choose to listen to God's wisdom? How do you choose to hear his wisdom from his word? Because we have wisdom himself speaking it to us. If we would just hear it as such. There's another aspect, I believe, of of sweetness we find here. I don't want us to miss. Imagine if I were to go to your home, you have a framed picture somewhere. Hang up on your wall, on your mantle, in a photo album. But it's a family picture of different generations of your family together. One generation with another generation with another generation. And I love seeing those pictures of newborns. And the the family comes home and, and, and the parents are... If it's a son, it's the, the father holding the son, and his father is sitting next to him, and his father is sitting next to him, or you know, same with the mother with the daughter, and the mother and mother. And those are very sweet and, and, and wonderful pictures. You've heard me talk before about my grandfather, who I love and spent so much time with. And he died, it was 11 years ago now. And there's a lot of things that I miss about him being gone. One of those I miss is he wasn't here for the birth of our son, Patrick. And I know my grandfather would have loved Patrick. He, he, he would have loved all the children. He would have loved Patrick. But I would have loved to have a picture of me holding Patrick with my dad next to me and, and his father next to him. We don't have that. But those generational pictures can communicate so much, can't they? We look at them, we see, we see family, we see love, we see devotion, we see care. But... The familial tradition we have here of the passing down of godly wisdom from one generation to another is so much better, isn't it? It's not just 
corralling everybody and gathering on a couch to get a picture. This is this wonderful picture, a tradition of a Christian parent passing along godly wisdom to their children. Wisdom they received from their parents, who received it from their parents, and so on and so forth. Right here, we're given this wonderful picture of a Christian family. Of a parent who, who loves Jesus so much because Jesus loved them so much. And in their love of Jesus, they love and care enough for their children to take time to, to share wisdom in such a way. And it impacts their child. So when their child gets older and they have children, they do the same with their children. And that impacted those children. And so they do it with their, when they have children and so on and so forth. It's this wonderful picture of the dynamic of the Christian family. So often we can think of the Christian family as, okay, we need to get up on Sunday morning, put on our Sunday best, get to Sunday school, <clears throat> go to church. And then if we've got time during the week, if sports and other things don't get in the way, we may go to youth group and children's group and go to prayer meeting. And everything goes along with that. And if we need to pray, every once in a while we'll pray and we'll pray before meals. And that's the Christian family. But the Christian family is so much more intentional than that. As we see here, it's taking the time to spend with your children to not talk about grades or how to hit a curveball or to have a better serve in volleyball. It's about sharing the wisdom of God. But some of us don't have that tradition. Maybe we come from a family where our parents weren't Christian. Or maybe they were just nominal Christians and they didn't take time to share God's wisdom with us. Whatever it is, we, we look at this and we feel like we're aliens. We feel like we're strangers because this isn't our story. But you know the great thing about tradition is you can always start a tradition. You can always start a tradition. It doesn't have to be passed along. You can always start one. So maybe it's time this tradition started in your family. You may not have the tradition passed down to you. Maybe it has been passed down to you and you've ignored it. But maybe for some of us, it's that time now that we've started tradition of actually being a Christian family. To be that parent who, who loves our children enough to invest love and time to deliberately and intentionally share biblical wisdom with our children, with our family, with our church. Because that's what we find Solomon doing here, isn't he? That's what he's been doing all along, right? So many times we can say, well, it's not the right time. Yeah, I, uh, um, maybe, maybe we can get done, we're doing something else, right? Solomon isn't waiting on the right time. He isn't waiting for it to be done in passing. He, he's very intentionally and deliberately taking time to share this wisdom with his son because that's what David did with him, a man after God's own heart. And he lived out for his son. So it could be, very well be that you need to start doing this very same thing for your family. When I was in youth ministry, I used to preach to my parents over and over again that on the best of weeks, I would have three to four hours with their youth. Have a seven-day week, whatever seven is times 24, I can't do math, but how many hours that equals out to, out of all those oodles of hours, I get four, at best, I get four hours with your kid. You get a whole lot more. This is one hour out of the week. 
and you get a whole lot more. So it may be time that you start a tradition in your family of deliberately and intentionally telling them about Jesus and sharing biblical wisdom with them. Because one thing that scripture teaches over and over again is that God works through families. That's part of our covenant theology. Part of the reason why we baptize infants. Because God works through families. He has a special place in his plan of redemption for families. Think of the story of Noah. Noah was the righteous man. But who did God save? Noah and his family. Think of Abraham and the place his family played in the plan of redemption. Think of Moses. We come to the New Testament. Think of Timothy, the Philippian jailer, even of Peter. The testimony of Scripture over and over again is that God works in and through Christian families. And part of that plan is us passing down biblical wisdom from one generation to the next. That's what we are called to do. I don't think anybody in here wants to raise their children to go to hell. If you do, you've got, you've got greater problems than we need to talk afterwards. But I don't think anybody, when, their child, when they hold their child for the first time, or their grandchild for the first time, or, or, or a baby in the church, look at them and go, oh, I can't wait for you to go to hell. Are we raising them to not go to hell? We don't want to raise nominal Christian children who only go to church when it's convenient for them. Who will only commit to church after they fulfilled their commitment to sports and friends and having a good time. We don't want to raise children who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior yet live like Satan is their God. We want children who are bold in their love for Christ. Who are faithful in their obedience to the love and grace of God. Who sacrifice their lives, or they have, they're sacrificial in their lives of service to Christ and to his church. And this passage teaches us that we have that call as parents, grandparents, uncles, and aunts, even as church members, to establish and raise up a faithful Christian community. And what better time than now to be committed to that when the traditional Christian family has this huge bullseye on it from the world and from culture. Make no mistake, there is one, one thing that, one of the things that's most hated in our world and culture right now is you and us. It hates a Christian mother and father raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you don't think so, go home tonight. You don't have to turn on TV tonight. Just go stream shows off Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, HBO. Ray Ortland explains in his book on this passage, chapter 4, is about how we can live. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Every one of us wants that, but we don't deserve it. But we can have it. And we can have it to the max because Jesus gives it on terms of grace. Gardner Spring, in his sermon on James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father Light, said this, other sources of enjoyment there are, but he is the great source. Other givers there are, but he is the great giver. The sun gives us light, the clouds their rain, the earth its fruit, the seeds treasures. Angels give, men are givers. Yet of all the givers in the universe, God is the greatest. The Father of lights and of mercies himself 
is the source, the contriver, the dispenser of every good and every perfect gift. Nobody will outgive God. He is the greatest of givers. And the gospel is not about what we give to God, but what he gives to us. Abundant life and all this richness and fullness. And we want that. Life abundant in Christ. For the gospel to reign, for Jesus to be everything. That's what we should want in our families. And that's the tradition we find in Proverbs 4. And we're taught that this tradition can only begin with Jesus himself. We see it in verses 1 through 4. We've already read them. We won't read them again. But Solomon is again recounting how he learned this wisdom from his father David. He's now passing it on down to his son. So Solomon is talking about a, a t- tradition in the terms of previous generations handing down something of their own to us. So often now you know, we, 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 we want to move on to the next biggest, best, most modern thing. And the idea of, of, of honoring the previous generations before us has become more antiquated. But biblical wisdom is that previous generations are not disqualified from speaking our two lives just because they're dead. Matter of fact, the opposite they have an advantage over us. Because think of what Paul says in 2 Timothy. They have fought the good fight. They have finished the race. They have kept the faith. Think about what we can learn from previous generations. Right? They've lived through the good and the bad. They've lived through the easy and the hard, the ups and the downs. They've lived through it all. They know what life is like. And you know what the testimony is of every Christian from previous generations? is It's all worth it. All the good, all the bad, all the easy, all the hard, all the ups, all the down, it's all worth it because of Jesus Christ. They know far better than us what Paul meant to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was all worth it for the glory, grace, and love of Jesus Christ. That's the testimony of previous generations. And isn't that the, the, the wisdom we want to learn from them? You know, we chuckle at times because, um, you know, uh, our, our AC in the church may not be keeping up to our, our comfortable standards. But it wasn't too long ago, there was no AC in this church. So can you imagine a day like this with no AC? I trust y'all didn't have pastors wear robes back then because I feel for those guys. They would be sweating up a storm. But windows open, uh, hot, humid air blowing through. But they gathered for worship, didn't they? Think about how much we can learn from previous generations. How much they teach us about Jesus Christ, that he's worth it. I want to think for a moment uh, how we gain from this tradition as Christians. And I found somebody who explained it this way. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus. And that may be average of 60 generations if we figure about 33 years per generation. About 12 generations into this comes a man named Augustine. He taught us that God made us for himself and our hearts are not are restless until we find our rest in him. And Augustine did find that rest. About 32 generations into this, along comes a man named Anselm. He taught us that, while, that until we come to Christ, we cannot know what a heavyweight sin is. And for Anselm, he found that that weight was lifted away through Jesus Christ. 45 generations in comes a man named Martin Luther. He teaches... That God treats bad people like good people through the finished work of Christ on the cross received with mere faith. And Luther entered into that grace. Fifty-three generations in comes a man named Jonathan Edwards. 
He teaches that real Christianity is a miracle as God powerfully awakens dead hearts with new affections for Christ. And God gave that miracle to Edwards. About 59 generations in, along comes a man named Billy Graham who went out and boldly shared the gospel with millions of people who more than likely has had an effect even to us. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we don't have to imitate their style, but we'd be fools not to imitate their faith. And what does the testimony of wisdom their faith tells us? Jesus never fails. He didn't fail me. He hasn't failed previous generations. He will not fail you. And that's the, that's the tradition of our faith. And that's where the tradition of our family should be founded and begin from. Jesus is worth it. He will not fail you. He has never failed anyone. And as obvious as this may sound to us, I think we need to hear it over and over again. That the Christian faith begins with Jesus. The Christian marriage begins with Jesus. The Christian family begins with Jesus. The Christian home begins with Jesus. The Christian church begins with Jesus. It all begins with Jesus. Because sometimes we're tempted to think that we're worthy because we can trace our family so far back in a church lineage. Or we think we're worthy because we're pretty good people. And people tend to like us. And we may even seem holy to others. We, we may think we're worth it because we make the effort to get up every Sunday and put on halfway decent clothes to come to church. And everybody who's ever thought like that has ended up in hell. Because it always begins with Jesus. So the question before each of us is, is, is do we have Jesus? No, not in an abstract way, like we really like this guy, we like hearing about him, he seems like a pretty cool dude. But in a real way. That you've placed your faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That you've received and rested upon him alone for salvation as he's been offered in the gospel. Simply put, is Jesus really your Lord, your Lord and Savior? Because that's where it all begins. This tradition, this family, this wisdom, the passing down of his wisdom all begins with Jesus. Every mighty river in the world goes back to this source. And the source for our lives of Jesus Christ. It's where it begins and it's where it keeps moving. That's what it says in Proverbs 4.18. The path, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. As we've been seeing throughout this book, and we're going we're to end on this note. Yeah, we'll end on this note. Um, as we've seen in this, in this book of wisdom, there are only two paths to take in life. It's the path of wisdom or it's the path of evil. Now, we like to try to forge a third path. We're, we're holy enough, we think we're going to go to heaven, but we like to kind of dabble over with our evil, right? I may get wasted Friday night, Saturday night, but as long as I'm at church on Sunday, I'm doing pretty good. I may, I may cuss like a sailor up until 1059 when I walk into the church, but as long as I'm at church, I'm doing pretty good, right? We, we, we like to be holy enough to make ourselves feel better, but we really sure do like to do evil. But God said there's only two ways. Either it's the disaster of a life without his wisdom or it's the bright success of life with his wisdom. So it says in verse 13 that God's wisdom is your life. Wisdom is life. God's wisdom is life. It's a life that begins in Jesus and continues with Jesus. Think about how Jesus is described to us in the scriptures. The bread of life. 
that when you drink from his well, you will never thirst again. He's the shepherd who leads you on green paths and beside still waters. We have all these descriptions about Jesus in the Bible. It's about a life in Jesus. And we may have fooled ourselves into thinking that faith in Jesus is just a profession of who he is and then moving on. But we're told over and over again, no, Jesus is life. We've been watching uh, this show, Ted Lasso, on, on Apple TV. It's about soccer player. They call it football because they're weird and in England. But anyways, it's about soccer. They call it football. And there's this player on there who keeps on saying over and over again, football is life, football is life, football is life. Jesus is life. And that's part of tradition we are to hand down to our children and families. Hand down to our church. And we'll ask it this way. Do, do they see you living for Jesus? Does your family, your children, does church, do they see you living for Jesus? Not just on Sunday and not just when the pastor's around. Do they see you living for Jesus? Do they see you always recommitting your way to him? Well, sin, there's no doubt about it. But how do you handle your sin? That's what it says here in Proverbs 4. That behind every sin, our temptation to sin, is this overwhelming power of darkness and despair. So what do we choose? Do we choose that way it's going to lead us to darkness and despair? Or do we choose Christ who lives us to a life abundant? Do we repent when we go against Jesus or do we find we just kind of pay him lip service? Oh, God, I'm sorry, but I'm going to go out and do it all over again. The tradition of wisdom isn't just what we tell others, it's what we live to tell others. Are you living for Jesus? I'll end with this. I am, I am sick and tired of hearing Christians complain about society and culture. Because we don't do anything about it. We watch the same shows, we listen to the same music, we take the same pictures, we use the same language. If we want our families to be saved from this culture, it begins with Jesus. And it begins with the wisdom of Jesus. And us sharing that wisdom with Jesus. And living out that wisdom of Jesus for our families. When we live a halfway life for Jesus, we should not be surprised when our children live even less of a halfway life for Jesus. And we should be surprised when our church is only halfway for Jesus. Wisdom is faith in Jesus and living it out for our children and generations to see. Let's pray.